Today's guest is Abby Mark. The corporate media presents a cartoonishly one-sided narrative about the occupation of Palestine. I wanted to show both sides malicious lies from the Israel side, incessant propaganda to dehumanize Palestinians. Rarely do you see Palestinians painted in a humane way. Women leading movements, people describing their own oppression. This guy is openly saying, take out a gun. He brought a gun himself. He is the change he wants to see. Israel is a settler colony built on top of Palestine, continues to ethnically cleanse the indigenous population on a daily basis. It's going to be increasingly difficult for liberals to apologize for the reality of apartheid. ADL asked the Israeli government to tone down their level of terrorism. Getting hard to tell the <laughs> lie out here. Heard from countless colleagues, Palestine is the third rail issue. You don't talk about it if you want to keep your job. Well, fuck that. You're not a human being if you don't use your platform to talk about what's going on. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you've said something like, are you even serious about peace if you haven't murdered a journalist? <laughs> Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com, and if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Find us also on Patreon where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and additional one to two podcasts per week, including our latest podcast, the Patreon Pod. It's a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture and get a little more personal. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. Today's guest is the brilliant Abby Martin. Abby Martin is an American journalist, show presenter, activist, and artist. She helped found the citizen journalism website Media Roots and is the host of the investigative documentary and interview series The Empire Files. Abby has been involved in numerous film projects, including producing the recent feature documentary Gaza Fights for Freedom, and she's currently producing another feature called Earth's Greatest Enemy. Abby has been a supporter of the Palestinian struggle for liberation for many years now and has reported from occupied Palestine on numerous occasions. She's also no stranger to the Palestine pod audience. We've received more requests to host Abby Martin than probably any other guest. <laughs> so we're so grateful to have you here. Abby, welcome to the Palestine pod. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. It's an honor to be here. Let's jump right into Gaza Fights for Freedom. I actually rewatched it yesterday because I wanted it to be fresh in my mind. And I had some time to reflect on, on the story and the way that you wrote this documentary because you wrote, you produced, you narrated. I mean, this is really your baby, right? One of the things that really stood out to me was the way that this documentary serves as this perfect rebuttal to the barrage of lies and dehumanization and racism and misinformation that we see about Gaza, but about Palestine more generally in the mainstream narrative. This documentary serves to just correct the narrative. And, and I really thank you for that because for people who are looking for good information on Palestine, if they turn to the mainstream media, they will unfortunately leaves a lot to be desired and they'll leave confused and they'll leave without really any indication of who Palestinians are, why they're upset, what their lives are like. And yet these are the essential questions that we really need to understand. Can you maybe walk us through why it was important for you to structure the story in that way? And, and was it in your mind, this need to correct the mainstream narrative on Palestine? Thank you so much for watching it. I know it's a tough watch. The corporate media presents a cartoonishly one-sided narrative about the occupation of Palestine and presents it as a conflict, right? A conflict between two equal warring states over political and religious differences. And it's completely insulting and very confusing for people and a lot of well-intentioned people, too, who don't understand the obvious truth and the history. So with the film, I wanted to show both sides. I did show both sides. And that's why you see the malicious lies from the Israel side that is just incessant propaganda 
to dehumanize Palestinians, because essentially that is all we see from the corporate media. All we see is this one-sided narrative. And so I wanted to show that narrative and I wanted to show it debunked by Palestinians themselves in a humanizing way, Palestinians leading the footage themselves, because as you know, I mean, I was banned from entering Gaza. I was called an Iranian spy, a propagandist from the Israeli government. So I was not able to get into the besieged area, which is why we hired videographers to direct that footage with me directing the actual interviews. But they themselves filmed what they wanted Americans to see. And rarely do you see Palestinians painted in a humane way, right? With women leading movements, with people describing their own oppression. A lot of people have said, oh, the documentary is very one-sided. Well, to me, it shows both sides pretty clearly. And above all, it really is an indictment of Israel even using the UN's own documents about the Great March of Return, irrefutably proving war crime after war crime after war crime. And that's what I wanted people to take away. Not only a clear, lucid understanding of what the reality is in Gaza, what the reality is of occupied Palestine and Israeli propaganda, but also the fact that war crimes are being irrefutably committed and that there needs to be an international war crimes tribunal against Israel. And this documentary, I was hoping, could be a way to push that forward with incredible amounts of evidence. Yeah, anytime that there's any media that shows them in an unfavorable light, they'll tell you it's one-sided. But it's <laughs> it's it's not. Like, you spoke to Israelis themselves and let them tell on themselves that they want to murder all Arabs, that they want to displace people. People that they're happy to do that. And that's like a large part of the culture. You allowed them to say it. And isn't it a neat trick that it's a whole government full of spies and they accuse you of being a spy? Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? <laughs> yeah. And we always hear, oh, it's the Palestinians who want to commit genocide. They want to kill all Israelis. And that's why we have to keep them besieged in this open right. air prison and caged like animals and occupied in this brutal way. But it only takes five minutes to go and speak to Israelis themselves. Let them tell the story. Why is it? You have to ask yourself, why is it that we never hear from just average Israeli citizens on the streets about what their ideology is? It's always just sanitized and painted through the lens of kind of this liberal whitewashing campaign in America. And that's very purposeful. Or even just like they have like super polished murderers who are like really comfortable about talking about murder. I mean, look at the recent election results. My God. I mean, this is going to be the most oh, far yeah. right coalition in power. And I think that really says it all. It's going to be increasingly difficult for liberals to apologize for the reality of apartheid. They'll still do it, though. They will. Ridiculous that Netanyahu's like coming back. I mean, good God, with this other crazed fascist now taking a cabinet minister position. Yeah, that party, the religious Zionism party, actually is Nazi party. We covered it last week on the pod. Horrifying. Horrifying. I mean, this guy is openly saying just kill, like take out a gun and just shoot Palestinians. He brought a gun himself. He is the change he wants to see. Yeah, even APAC and all these other, you know, extensions of the Israeli lobby have made statements in the past, not because they care about this guy guy really being a part of the cabinet but because of how it will look the western yeah. world they were very concerned about him taking an official position and it's going to be really hard to spin that but like you said they're they're going to do it anyway the adl asked the israeli government to tone down their level of terrorism because it's like it's getting hard to tell the <laughs> lie out here <laughs> and not make the shit up man oh my god I know, I wish I would have written that. Michael was referencing your video where you actually go into the streets of occupied Palestine and you talk to Israelis, which produces some very scary results. And, you know, you're not, it's not the first video of its kind. There's actually other reporters that have done this, but they all seem to share the same consensus, which is that, you know, you have ordinary people, you know, young girls giggling about killing all the Arabs. You know, the word carpet bomb was used when you interviewed civilians about what should be done with Palestinians. Suggestions like deport them all. This land is all ours. But even in the documentary, you do also show both sides. You show the Sidero cinema, you show where, you know, Israelis sit on the hilltops and watch the bombs drop over Gaza. You show videos of Israeli official after Israeli official blaming the number of deaths of Palestinians during the Great March of Return. And those deaths included numerous children, young women, medics, journalists, etc. Israeli officials blame that on Palestinians themselves, right? So this notion that we're responsible for our own deaths, and whether it be because we are just a people who love death, and you know, we walk into the bullets or acting as human shields, because our families send us to die, all of these super racist notions that fly in the face of 
humanity in general, there is no attempt by Israel to actually engage with the merits of our grievances. There's this cruel siege. We're put on a calorie-restricted diet. There's no electricity. Israel has bombed most of the water sanitation plants in Gaza. They've made Gaza unlivable by all standards. And yet, when we attempt to organize, to, to resist against these cruel conditions that are, that are created, the political choice to make Gazans and Palestinians live in this way, when we resist against that, oh, well, we just love death. It's probably the most grotesque dehumanization of caricature of like any peoples in the world. And the fact that this propaganda has been so permanent, you know, you look back at like war propaganda justifying massacres and genocides and the human shield narrative continues to get resurrected over different generations and the Palestinian human shield narrative continues to persist. And it's just absolutely horrifying because it's like you said, I mean, it's so contrary to just human nature and basic human dignity to actually say that people worship death and they are killing themselves. So how could they do this to themselves? You know, you have Israeli officials being paraded around mainstream media, liberal entities like MSNBC and CNN saying, look, Hamas and, and all these children these children are being sacrificed by their parents, being thrown in the line of fire. It's such a racist trope about Arabs and Muslims. You talk to any Palestinian. I mean, of course they share the love for life. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just it's just horrific to actually just paint with such a broad brush of people and just say like, oh yeah, no, they worship death. No, these people are being driven to extreme actions because they're caged like animals. And back in 2018, when the Great March of Return started, and you know, I'll never forget that horrific day where 62 Palestinians unarmed were mowed down by Israeli snipers hiding like cowards, just picking people off one by one through sniper scopes. And we were told that this was some sort of mass suicide, this mass sacrifice. I remember the next day, the New York Times headline was Israelis reflect I hope every bullet was justified. I mean, I cannot remember any other instance where 62 people are mowed down by sniper fire and this apologia actually blaming the victims for their own mass death is constructed in the media at a time where we're supposed to be, you know, pretending that our foreign policy is based on humanitarianism and human rights and democracy. It's insulting to our intelligence. You know, I'll never forget... When I spoke to the Palestinian videographers who I collaborated with to do this documentary, and I always tear up when I talk about this because it's just so obvious and so heartbreaking that the message that they wanted to send to Americans is that we love life and that we don't want to die. And it's just obvious and insulting. This is horrifically wrong, what is happening to these people. It's a lot to basically have to explain that to people, that these people deserve to live. Like most false narratives, it's a projection because Palestinians are not the ones signing bombs as children. The Palestinians are not the ones who grow up going to like military expos where they can load a clip by the age of seven. It's a, a military worship culture in the occupation. They love death. They murdered Shireen Abu Ekla and now they're talking about, we know who did it and we're not going to prosecute them because that's what we do. It's a society that is built on murder, encourages murder, and incentivizes murder because you become like a hero. Yeah, I mean, here we are learning still about the horrors of colonialism and genocide of Native peoples in our country, what a stain it is on our record, and, you know, reckoning of, of land rights and land back and the recognition of Indigenous peoples and who was here first. And, and here we are just unequivocally supporting a settler colonial state that is engaging in genocide and the expulsion of Native peoples on a daily basis. That is why Palestine is such a central issue to so many struggles that we face today as leftists, as socialists, as progressives in this country. And that is why it's so necessary to intertwine the liberation of Palestine with the struggle for human rights, because it's just such an obvious one that it, it flies in the face of rationale.
but this is still being accepted and endorsed by a lot of liberal institutions. And, you know, you mentioned, well, first of all, the 30,000 people that were wounded, you know, shot with sniper fire. There's been barely any investigations even of the snipers who callously took the lives of 230 plus Palestinians during the Great March of Return. Shireen Abu Akleh, they have admitted that it was she was intentionally shot. I mean, we know that they knew who the fuck she was. Israeli snipers shot her in the neck. We even had the U.S. having to come out and say, yeah, it's a really unfortunate incident. Oh, but you know what? Palestinian fighters were in the area. So it's just an un- one of those unfortunate things. And this is the yeah. attitude response from U.S. politicians. I mean, I think they shot her intentionally. And I think the evidence is there to prove that. So there's so many people. I mean, I think Razan Al-Najjar, it's the same story. They knew who she was. They hated her. They intentionally killed her. And you see U.S. officials coming out and saying, yes, turns out after months of denying or weeks of denying this, yep, it turns out that she was indeed shot by Israeli snipers. This is still the response, right? This callous disregard for accountability and just complete impunity that's given to Israel, even in the case of a revered journalist. Yeah, I want to say thank you because you are one of the only people who pushed back against a government official who was trying to pay lip service when we all knew what was going on. And you've consistently been that for our generation. And so I just want to say thank you for your position in the work that you do. Thank you so much for saying that. That's very sweet. And it's really insulting to see figures like Secretary Blinken bemoan the suppression of human rights and democracy in places like Nicaragua and Cuba, while its two largest allies are brutal theocratic dictatorships who are suppressing millions of people's basic human dignity and rights and journalistic freedom. I mean, it's it's truly beyond the pale that this is where we're at and this rhetoric is still allowed to fly. Going back to your documentary really quickly, when you're standing on the streets of occupied Palestine talking to people who are like, the only way we can deal with this is to carpet bomb Gaza, what are you thinking in that moment? You know, this is such a horrifying clip. And like you said, I mean, this isn't rare, right? People have done this before and exposed kind of the the true nature of the fascist sentiment that exists and is very prevalent throughout Israeli society, I would say, has is the majority of Israel, especially today. And it's hard to deny that. This was after we spent weeks in Ramullah going all across the occupied West Bank. It was an incredible experience. We spoke to hundreds of Palestinians. I mean, the most amazing thing about Palestinian culture is just how open and receptive people are, how beautiful the culture is, how people are just like, come into our homes, have dinner with us. I don't want to (laughs) go back to the dystopian hell that I live in, even though, you know, of course, the occupation is so ever present, it's hard to like uncouple that and the beauty of Palestine. But at the same time, I didn't hear one Palestinian, not one, say anything remotely the same as what I saw, what I heard Israelis say about Palestinians in fucking two hours in Jerusalem, a place called Tolerant Square. I mean, I would talk to Palestinians all day about like what, you know, people who were the last house in a village that was being encroached by settlers that were terrorizing them on a daily basis, throwing rocks in their homes, attempting to firebomb them. And they just said, why are they doing this? I just want to live in peace. There's so much empty land. Why do they have to move right on top of my village? We can live in peace, but they won't let us. Then you go to Jerusalem. We went to a place called Tolerant Square. I shit you not in Jerusalem for about two to three hours. A lot of people say these are cherry picked interviews. You can see it on our YouTube. It's called Israelis, I think, like candidly endorsed genocide to Abby Martin. I encourage everyone to watch it because it really does paint the most accurate description of, of that fascist sentiment that I was talking about that we know exists and is very prevalent. It's so prevalent that you just pick five to 10 people, just passerbyers on the street that are willing to talk to you. And mind you, this is a person on camera These are people endorsing these views on camera to an American audience. That's how proud and gleeful they were to describe what they think about Palestine and Palestinians and the genocide that they're endorsing. And so that's why it was so shocking. It's not like I had a hidden camera being like, oh man, like this is fucking crazy what these people really think behind closed doors. No, this is like what they are willing to express to Americans. It's just that our media sanitizes these views. So I mean, five to 10 people, all of them were ready and willing to speak. This was over the course of just a couple hours. And every single person endorsed genocide, ethnic cleansing. The one person who said that they were considered a leftist, which they said was actually a slur in Israeli society, they just said the occupation should be more humane. 
That's what it means to be a leftist. Leftism is a slur in that society, which inherently puts you on the right. Like the far, you know, and the further you get to the right, the more leftist seems like a slur. It's truly incredible. I mean, to see little girls giggling, kill all the Arabs. And I was just like, I'm sorry, what? And that one, that came through a translator, right? Or no, they said it in English. They said, and then her friend was just like, oh, like, like trying to tamp down on it. Like, oh, maybe we should uh, talk about this later. And she was just right. I noticed that it was, it seemed like one girl who was doing the translating was like, oh, maybe this is not the best thing to put on camera, actually. <laughs> like, what if we're perceived as the bad people? And that girl, I think, seemed to have an American accent. So she probably knew a little bit more about like the perception that needed to be painted. But the Israeli girl was just like, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to go all in because why not? I mean, it's just, it was grotesque. I mean, one guy being like carpet bomb them all. Another guy saying, yeah, no, give them a state, give them a state, but then we'll just have one giant nuke and then we can finally end this once and for all. Right. And then another guy just saying, you know, kick them all out. Like why we want them all to leave. And that was probably the most humane response other than the leftists, the so-called leftists who said the occupation should just be more humane. It's a little bit, it's a little bit brutal right now, but if we just make it more humane, then everything will be a-okay. Yeah. Let's just like cut the wall in half. You know, <laughs> a little let's, bit less wall. <laughs> let's just have like a few less gates at the checkpoints, right? Let's just come on, guys. We can all get along. I mean, the hardest part about doing that was keeping a straight face and like, you know, asking people the most general questions like, what do you think about the situation? Like, that's literally how vague my descriptor was to prompt people to just go all in fascist rhetoric. I mean, it, it was so alarming. I felt so disgusting after talking to these people. And, you know, the only response that really people can issue is, okay, not only were they cherry picked, but, oh, okay, go talk to Palestinians. You don't get the same answers. It's like, bro, we did. Yeah. No one said anything remotely as hateful as what these people said. Yeah, Palestinians are like, this is our uh, shawarma recipe. You're welcome to some falafel. <laughs> and Israelis are like, you got a nuke em. You got a nuke em. And it's like, okay, I don't think you guys understand how nukes work. Like, you're so close right, right. that it's, you're nuking yourself. It's so bad. And you see this reflected in polls too, right? Like, this isn't just some coincidental sampling that just happened to be super fascist. I mean, polls across... Israeli society endorsed the shoot to kill policy. They endorsed the besiegement of Gaza. They endorsed the occupation. Even though Bernie Sanders was the Jewish candidate, like they were Trumpists. Friends going and doing man on the streets just randomly. And 99% of people were very, very strong supporters of Donald Trump. And I think that, that, that you know, it's harder to explain the whole allegiance and alliance with Trump and Netanyahu and paint Israel as some sort of democratic progressive society that's built on, you know, human rights. And, and, and again, this is just becoming more and more difficult and paving more space for Palestinian rights to enter the conversation, I think. So can you take us a little bit through how you did this unlearning and relearning process when it came to Palestine? It's such a great question, I think, for everyone, because everyone has a different story of when like the propaganda became so obvious and that it was just impossible to see it from any other side, really. And I think for me, you know, it was always in the background. And this is the thing about painting Palestinians as terrorists, especially when you grow up in a post 9-11 world. My whole political awakening and radicalization moment happened with 9-11 and then subsequently the Iraq war. And so my senses and awareness were very heightened around that time. And so the propaganda was very like I was deconstructing it real time. And I'll, I'll never forget the morning of 9-11. It kept showing Palestinians dancing in the streets, totally out of context. Right. And it just kept painting them and conflating Palestinians as somehow connected to the 9-11 attacks. The morning of 9-11, you had the prime minister talking about now you're going to understand what the war on terror is, making it synonymous with Israel's plight, right, against their fight against terrorism. And so it, it was always in the background. And I think to this day, you'll talk to people who still somehow construe Palestinians as complicit in 9-11, as related to the 9-11 attacks. It's really fascinating how 
poignant that propaganda was to plant the seeds from that point forward of, of Palestine and Palestinians as, as part of the war on terror. The more you become aware of U.S. imperialism and tying it into empire and, and how all of this is just falsely constructed to gain hegemony across the planet, especially in the Middle East, you, you start to understand the role of Israel. But for me, it became completely impossible to ignore. Two moments, I would say, were really groundbreaking for me. I would say the, the flotilla raid, 2010. It was just the most shocking thing ever. You know, a flotilla bringing humanitarian supplies to Gaza was raided in international waters by Israeli commandos that dropped in on their ship and started executing people. Like, activists were shot dead. Um, tried to arm themselves with forks and tables and chairs and whatever they wh whatever else they could find on the ship to repel these Israeli commandos that had jumped on the ship to kill people, execute activists who were unarmed, and the fucking media. I'll never forget, man. There was a video just circulated around across all the corporate media showing, like, painting red circles over the activists holding tables to try to block the bullets being like they're attacking the soldiers, justifying the deaths of the activists. And I was just like, okay, this is like insane. This is one of the most insane propaganda drives I have ever seen. Like how could anyone defend this? Yet there they were, were defending it. They were defending it all day. Even remember Joe Biden going out there defending the flotilla raid massacre. It's absolutely horrifying. And then, of course, as we know, every couple of years, Israel goes on the offense and commits this horrific bloodletting in Gaza. 2012, when 2,500 Palestinians were slaughtered in Gaza, I had several Palestinian colleagues working at Russia Today with me that were phoning their families all day, trying to find out if they were alive or dead. And to live for a moment through the eyes of a Palestinian who's been expelled from their homeland, who has family still caged in Gaza, and who's trying to figure out if they're alive after one of these raids, you don't forget that, you know? And so for me, I was just like, I can't just go on with my life and career without talking about this and making it a central issue because so many people are not. And because I have heard from countless colleagues and people in journalism that Palestine is the third rail issue. You don't talk about it if you want to keep your job. Well, fuck that. Because you're not a human being if you don't use your platform to talk about what's going on. And so I made that decision at RT. I, I talked about the, the war crimes that were happening. I remember I even had an argument with like an Israeli government official who was just like, come to Israel, come to Israel and you'll find out the truth. Well, I did. Yeah. And I found out the truth. All right. They're always like, you got to come commit war crimes yourself before your opinion matters. <laughs> you really understand what we do. You don't even, have you ever looked down the scope of a sniper rifle at a medic? You don't know what it's like. The level of indoctrination and forced militarization of almost every Israeli citizen to serve in the military, I think, plays a huge part of, of the fascism that's born and bred. Yeah, and you talk about almost because there is that Orthodox community that does not serve, but they are being drafted and currently they are resisting draft service, not necessarily because they have solidarity with Palestinians. They just don't believe it's their job to uphold the apartheid. They think that other people should do that. When you're recounting the story of speaking with your RT colleagues who are phoning their family in Gaza and putting yourself in the position of a Palestinian who has been expelled and then finds himself a generation later subject to this abhorrent siege and these incessant attacks by the apartheid state. And it's often that piece, that the expulsion of Palestinians, that we don't hear about in the mainstream narrative. If we ever hear you know, about Palestinian plight, oftentimes it'll start with 67. It'll start with, okay, there's an occupation and Palestinians are in the West Bank and they're in Gaza. But we don't often hear that Palestinians were all over Palestine, that Gaza is where many Palestinians whose villages and towns and cities were completely destroyed by Zionist gangs were then expelled too. And how most of Gaza's population is a refugee population from areas that are now considered Israel, hence the Great March of Return. And then the continuation of the ethnic cleansing that has gone on for the last 70 years. You know, we talk about the the village Hajj in the documentary. You mentioned Stair Wrote, the 
I think a lot of people know who are peripherally paying attention to the situation know that groups of Israelis gather to lethally watch the bombing of Gaza and bloodletting that takes place up on their settlement on the hill, eating popcorn, drinking beer, watching bombs fall onto Gaza. Well, you know, a, a kind of dark undercurrent of that story is that this, of course, they're sitting on top of an ethnically cleansed village that used to be 100% Palestinian called Hajj. And it's one of 500 villages that were raised to the ground during the Nakba. And those people, a lot of them have been housed in Gaza, the, the generations that followed. And it's, it's, again, it's such a distorted narrative where people, honestly, I've talked to countless people who just think that Palestine's its own country, right? And Gaza is just on the border of Israel and and they just continue to try to like invade Israel. I mean, it's just such a bizarre distortion of what the reality is. We're talking about a tiny strip of land, one of the most densely populated regions in the world, vast majority refugees, majority children being deprived of just the most basic functions and dignity that any human being deserves including the right to movement. I mean, what other place in the world denies refugees the right and ability to actually flee via boat? That's why they're building this huge apartheid seawall. That's why they have Israeli commandos out in the middle of the ocean ready to blow people out of the water if they go farther than they're allotted to. Really dystopian when you analyze the actual prison wall, invisible and not, that surrounds this territory and what people are just perpetually punished for simply because they'll always use Hamas as an excuse. But as we know, since the foundation of the Israeli state, they've always declared refugees as infiltrators and they've always had a shoot to kill policy long before Hamas was elected. Who among us hasn't pulled up to watch a genocide like a UFC fight? <laughs> right. You Rabbit bring the couch, I'll bring the beers. Oh. If you're speaking to an American audience, Abby, what do you think is the single most important message from your perspective as a journalist and as somebody who's watching this from the outside to convey to Americans? I think the most important facet to explain to an American audience is that this is not a conflict between two states. This is an occupation and this is a besiegement of a land brutally suppressed right, by, by a more powerful entity. Israel was a state that was created on top of Palestine. This is not just two warring nations that are fighting over political and cultural and religious differences. And you see this narrative painted not only in conservative right-wing media, but in places like West Wing. I mean, countless documentaries and political films that come out every year about Palestine or Israel painted in this way. That it's just two nations that just can't get along, guys. There's never going to be peace in the Middle East because Palestine and Israel are just going to have this perpetual conflict over religious differences. It's just, it's cartoonishly false. Israel is a settler colony that has been built on top of Palestine, continues to ethnically cleanse the indigenous population on a daily basis, and continues to take more and more and more land, atomizing what we were told is the path to peace right? This so-called second state. And, and Palestine has already been atomized. I mean, Gaza is totally separate from the West Bank, which is being dotted by settlements and being taken over every single day by legal settlements. All of this is illegal under international law. But again, like for this progressive kind of sentiment to be taking over in America about the recognition of our genocide of Native peoples and to not understand how the same thing is happening now, and continues to happen backed by our tax dollars on a daily basis, that's the most obvious truth, right? And I think it's the most difficult pill to swallow because I don't think we're going to reach rabid conservative right-wingers who don't give a fuck about human rights. I think that our, you know, our intention here as a movement for Palestinian liberation, and especially as, as white allies like me who have the privilege of being an American citizen, I think our goal is to reach progressives and liberals and reach their heartstrings and say, look, this is the same exact thing. How can you support this? How can you call yourself progressive if you support settler colonialism, if you support ethnic cleansing? It does not make sense. 
And I think that that's happening more and more. And that's why at the end, Palestine will be free and Palestinians will win. Yeah, that's going in the promo for sure. You just cut a WWE style promo like the, I smell what you're cooking, Abby. <laughs> Gotta have hope, man. I mean, it's true, dude, because they can't yeah. win. They can't win the argument. I want to just switch gears and like yeah. talk about your favorite memory in Palestine. I mean, Palestine is the most amazing place that I've ever been. It's the most beautiful place I've ever been. And the people are the most hospitable, heartwarming and loving culture I've ever experienced. And I've traveled a lot of places around the world. Of course, I think it's difficult to uncouple the brutal reality of the fact that there's a military dictatorship and occupation happening. And it's very hard to remove that obvious looming reality over what you experience in Palestine. But there's so many beautiful things that have happened and that I experienced being there despite that. I think one of the most inspiring stories is a place that we went to called Sebastia. It's a hub of the PFLP. And we went, you know, we went on this, this hike throughout the most gorgeous like landscape. And we went to the outskirts of this village where there was a Palestinian flag planted in the ground on top of this hillside. And as we know, one of the aspects of the Israeli military dictatorship is it forbids people to display any sort of Palestinian insignia. And so that includes planting a Palestinian flag that subjects you to arrest and possibly being beaten by the Israeli military guards. And so the fact that this flag was planted so righteously in, in this hillside, I thought was very inspiring. And then it and then it came to be that we found out that just hours prior, Palestinians were actually shot, that Israeli guards were were hiding on the hillside, that they fucking spend their days hiding and trying to assault Palestinians who plant the flag on this hillside. And they actually sent two Palestinians to the hospital for simply planting a flag, pro-Palestine flag on the hillside. And it was so incredible to see that just hours after two Palestinians had gotten shot and brought to the hospital, that Palestinians went and did it again. The strength and resilience of the Palestinian people to just simply display who they are and never stop attempting to say, we will not be erased no matter what it's it's hard for i think a lot of americans to wrap their minds around that type of bravery you know i never really understood what bravery was before learning some of these stories meeting had tamimi and her father basim tamimi before she became an international icon and hero going to their house in Nabe Saleh, uh, which was a hub of the incessant settler attacks and also just assaults from the Israeli police on a weekly basis, being welcomed into their home. I mean, just spending the entire day with the Tamimi family. Her father's a fucking badass as well. He's a hero. And I, I'll never forget, I mean, it, Ahed was very young. I, I want to say she was like 14 or maybe even younger when I met her. But it was incredible. I mean, of course, she had had that video of her like punching an Israeli soldier from years prior. She had already been in the news. And so I just remember talking to her about, you know, what, like as a, such a young teen, like what does she want to do and what are her goals? She was just like, I just want to go to the beach, man. I want to go to the beach with my friends. I wish I could go. And it was just like, it's such an obvious thing for like a young woman who's just trying to live her life like growing up into adulthood to be like yeah i wish i could go to the beach that's just a mere couple miles from me but i'm forbidden to do that and of course she said a lot of other badass things about you know palestine will be free and such but it was like that moment of innocence of just like i just want to have fun and i just want to do what i should be able to do which is just travel and go to the beach that we know is right there Spending the day with them was such an incredible moment. Um, I remember, you know, Nablus was really amazing. We stayed in Ramallah for about a month, which was just incredible because a lot of journalists will go and report on Palestine from the comfort of 48. For me, going into actual 48 territory was pretty a, a sick experience you know the only things that i did were talk to those israelis for the man on the street interviews and then also go to an anti-refugee rally where people were literally like calling to kill and 
expel refugees. And so it was just such a gross experience. I couldn't wait to get the fuck out of there. I want to spend $1 within 48. And so it was amazing to just spend the entire time in Ramallah, be traveling around, experience the the richness of Palestinian culture, walking through the Muslim quarters of Jerusalem, going into random stores and basically feeling like the biggest celebrity in the world because almost every Palestinian had seen the rant that I gave on RT during the 2014 massacre. And they're like, I know you, like, thank you for speaking up for us. And and it was just shocking because I was like, oh, that's how rare it is for an international journalist to speak on behalf of Palestinians. It was an incredible moment of realization, like, holy shit, you know, like that, that's actually crazy that so few people speak out, just make these declarative statements that we all know are true, right? Because they tiptoe around this issue so much. You just want to stay. You just want to stay and you never want to leave, but you know that when you leave, you might never be able to come back. And like I said, later I found out that I was indeed banned. Oh yeah. That that documentary will get you banned for sure. That's <laughs> good work. So that's that's actually the the hallmark of a good journalist, though, is that like you did such good reporting that they're like, we could never let her back here. <laughs> <laughs> we're such a democracy and we we encourage free press so much that we're just going to ban journalists who are critical of us. It's yeah, it's really devastating, though, to know that I'll never be able to get into Gaza and like meet my friends there and really see the you know the beauty of and and richness of the culture of people who live there and the love that they emanate in inshallah one day you will thank you yeah i hope in the bds news there was a recent update to the georgia lawsuit where you challenged the state's anti bds laws and came out victorious can you let us know what's going on with that there is a concerted effort to stimmy the advancement of Palestinian rights, Palestinian liberation, as it becomes more popular, as the issue becomes more widely understood in this country. And so you've seen not only attempts to conflate and actually change the term anti-Semitism to actually anti-Zionism, which is very insulting. But as you see more American Jews and Jewish organizations standing up against the occupation and apartheid nature of Israel, the establishment is running very scared. And I think to stop what they know will inevitably be the fall of the apartheid state of Israel, which, you know, likens to what we saw in the apartheid fall of South Africa. They have tried to criminalize BDS activism across the country. In fact, I would argue it is the most policed form of activism and pro-Palestine speech is the most policed and criminalized speech in the entire country which is ironic because we hear all the time from conservatives bemoaning cancel culture and free speech and you know all these issues on college campuses it's very underreported that palestine speech is actually the most policed and criminalized and and that is really exemplified through these anti bds laws where in over half the states in the country actual state legislatures have put into law that you need to sign a pro-Israel loyalty pledge in order to work as an independent contractor in the state of Georgia, Arkansas, Texas. I mean, the list goes on and on. And they have basically undermined the First Amendment by allowing a foreign country to subvert our First Amendment and constitutional rights by saying, yeah, you have to pledge loyalty to a foreign country in order to work. This is, you know, anyone who's an independent contractor, so someone who's a construction worker, someone who's a substitute teacher, the list goes on and on. For me, I was slated to give a speech in Georgia at Georgia Southern University about media literacy. It wasn't even about Gaza Fights for Freedom. It wasn't about Palestine. It was just about media literacy, which I think is the cherry on the cake. A speech about media literacy was frankly censored by the anti-BDS law in place in Georgia, where I was given a contract in order to give a speech that said, you must never boycott the state of Israel and you must never advocate the, the boycott of Israel if you want to get money to give this speech. I was going to get a $1,000 honorarium to go to Georgia and speak. And I was just like, I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I had heard of these anti-BDS laws, but to actually see it in writing in this contract that was given to me by people who were running this conference, I couldn't believe my eyes. And I just said, well, uh, no, I can't sign this. This is totally against everything that I 
stand for. I would never sign something like this. They totally ghosted me. The conference completely fell apart. And I just felt totally helpless. I was like, I can't believe that this happened. I felt like I had no voice to fight back. And luckily, CARE and the PCJF, two incredible civil rights advocacy groups, took on the case, reached out to me after they saw me writing about this, and they said, let's fight back. You know, we have a case here. And we won. I mean, it was it was a victorious case. Uh, Judge Mark Cohen actually ruled that my constitutional rights were undermined by this law, because really the right to boycott goes back to the Montgomery bus boycotts of the Supreme Court case during the civil rights. I mean, the First Amendment includes the right to boycott, right? So it's not just a free speech issue, which you can't put a dollar amount on free speech. If you're getting paid a dollar or a thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars, you can't be told or dictated to of what you can and can't talk about and what you can and can't advocate the boycott of. That is just part of our fundamental civil rights in this country that has been enshrined by the Supreme Court for decades. The judge declared that to be true, and he followed suit of several other judges across the country. I think there had been four or five other cases that were challenging these anti-BDS laws in Texas and other states, and every single judge ruled it to be unconstitutional. And so it was a very hopeful time. Unfortunately, a year later, an Israeli lobby member had actually personally went to the Georgia state legislature and advocated to change, amend the law to make it so if you're making $100,000 as an independent contractor, then you would have to sign the pro-Israel loyalty pledge. So basically, it was a, a, a very pathetic attempt to keep the law in the book while rendering my lawsuit moot. That was intentional because they did not want to be defeated. There's a really complicated like legal story, but it's just so crazy that the ins and outs of the lobby and how much power they have to, to undermine and usurp our constitutional rights. But CARE and PCJF just filed an appeal to this because they said, look, it doesn't matter if it's a dollar or a hundred dollars or a hundred thousand dollars. The principle still stands and the judge still ruled on principle. So the law should not be changed to keep these this law in the books because you raise the cap. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Arkansas just saw a lawsuit against their anti-BDS law. And in a completely unprecedented move, the federal district court judge ruled that it was constitutional. So now what we're going to see, sadly, is Supreme Court will probably be hearing the final case on these anti-BDS laws. And holy shit, we know about the right-wing coup of the Supreme Court. And I you know, if you were to ask me two years ago, could anti-BDS laws be mandated federally? I would have said that's ludicrous. How can any judge, how can anyone, any justice who understands the fundamental principles of the Constitution rule in that way? But looking at the nature of the Supreme Court now, I fear the worst. And, you know, it, it might go that way because Israel's getting increasingly desperate to control the narrative. And this is really all they have. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that they will accuse you of anti-Semitism if you say, like, you have dual loyalty, but then they'll also be like, you need to sign this loyalty oath. <laughs> it's unreal. Uh, you could boycott America. Like, it's just crazy. It's like, can you imagine if that language was any other country? Russia, China, people would be like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, like, what is this fine print? Can't ever boycott the state of China. People would lose their fucking minds. But because it's Israel, people are just like, okay, they just don't even bat an eye. I just want to ask you about Earth's greatest enemy. Tell us about it and tell us how people can support the project. Thank you so much for asking. For the last year, my husband, Mike Prizer, and I have been traveling all over the world to film impacts of U.S. militarism on communities basically being ravaged by U.S. militarism, used as sacrifice zones. You know, we were really inspired not only by anti-imperialist struggles around the world, but coupling that with the impending doom of climate change and this kind of apocalyptic world that we're entering into and bringing our children into. These two issues are so intertwined and there's such a gaping lack of knowledge with the mainstream environmental movement to point to the main perpetrator of climate catastrophe and global pollution, which is the U.S. military. And that is a proven fact that the U.S. military is the largest institutional polluter and contributor to climate change in the world. And it's completely immune from climate treaties under the banner of national security and confidentiality. 
the U.S. military and not sex state can just get away with whatever they want. And so all of these climate treaties, you went to COP26 last year in Scotland, and it was just the elephant in the room. It was just like, how are we really going to talk about net zero and curbing emissions if the military is not even included in the conversations, if they're completely exempt from counting their emissions. And so it's just, it's totally laughable, right? Um, but it's also very scary because this is such a hidden, obvious fact. And so what we intend to do is pull this monster out of the shadows, out of the dark, into the light, and and really expose the horrific nature of U.S. militarism. And as we know, it goes beyond, of course, just the U.S. military. It's the whole structure of imperialism, which is predicated on capitalism. I mean, it's endless growth. And that is exactly what our foreign policy does at the expense of the planet. And it will not stop. And so we've traveled so many places, Scotland, Hawaii. I went and actually confronted military generals on the RIMPAC war games, the biggest war games being conducted in the Pacific Ocean. It was it was quite interesting to actually you know confront some of these people face to face. I got a chance to ask Nancy Pelosi a question. All the leading progressive governors and politicians who were paraded around COP26 as somehow climate warriors and heroes, all of their answers were the same. The military is the solution to climate change. The final solution. (laughs) Some guy, Frank Pallone from New Jersey, was just like, you know, he's like, I shit you not. He was just like, we're going to need a bigger Navy because the oceans are going to rise. Are we living in like... What? (laughs) Like, I mean, it's, it's... pretty pretty wild stuff you know so this hey but at least but at least i can't get a plastic straw you know what i mean that's what's important so we intend to really drive this point home hopefully insert something in the in the mainstream consciousness to push forward what we feel like is is the earth's greatest enemy which is u.s militarism imperialism and the system of capitalism unless we confront these obvious truths we are headed toward a collision course that is irreversible and people can go to earthsgreatestenemy.com to check out the trailer check out how they can support the film we are very near finishing filming and we hope to get into the post-production phase very soon and put out the documentary early next year so wow we can't thank you enough abby i know both lara and i have been fans for years and it is such a pleasure to talk to you you are truly one of the most courageous journalists of our generation nothing but respect thank you so much for your work and your time thank you so much you guys are awesome i really appreciate you having me on and i really appreciate your work this podcast is really great and you guys are fucking awesome, man. Thanks so much again. Thanks yeah. so much. Everybody support Abby Martin, support Empire Files, support this new project, and uh, we'll always be fans. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of the Palestine Pod. Go ahead and check out our full episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Follow us on Instagram at thepalestinepod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and look for us on Patreon. That's been another episode of the pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day. Man, I stuck that landing, but I was nervous around you, Abby. I'm not even going to lie. Like, I was like, I hope I do it well. (laughs) It's my podcast. (laughs)